this morning. We're going to keep going through the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 4 this morning. Uh, We had, when we planned this sermon, a very good idea to try to get through the book of Luke uh, by Easter so that we could come to the point where Jesus dies, kind of about the time of year where we celebrate his death. And then the more we started looking and preaching the book of Luke, we realized that may be really hard. There is so many good stories and pieces in the gospel of Luke that we want to really hone in on. And this week is an example of that. As we were looking at preaching through the book of Luke, we came across Luke 4, 16 through 30, and we said, how do we preach anything more than that in one week? I mean, there's so much packed into this this week that uh, we would hate to group it in with so many other passages and the message here get lost. And so we Decided we'd take our time a little bit more through the book of Luke, and so uh, bear with us as we walk for a while through this awesome account of Jesus' life. We've been asking three questions. We've been asking three questions at all times in the book of Luke, and you can ask this in any gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We've been asking, what do we see about Jesus? How did people in the Bible respond to Jesus, and how should we respond? So what do we see about Jesus How did people respond and how should we respond? We want to ask those three questions this morning. So our prayer this morning is that God would speak to us, that he would show us his glory, and that he would change us. So let's dive into the text. I'm going to read a little bit, and we're going to talk a little bit. So Luke chapter 4, Pastor Al preached last week through the temptation of Jesus, and he left off in verse 13, and verses 14 and 15 say this, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So let me pause for just a second. What we know about synagogue church services, we kind of learn a lot from this text. This is kind of the earliest text in the Bible that we see any sort of order of service in the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship. And so what we know is that someone would stand up and read scripture and then they would sit down and they would teach about it. So as you hear him standing up and him sitting down, uh, just kind of get the idea that that's what he's doing. He's standing up to read, then he's going to close the scroll and he's going to sit down. And when he sits down, it's not like, oh, he's done. He's sitting down because he's about to talk about it. Okay. So That's kind of what we know about synagogue church services. So he walks into the synagogue. We see that it's his custom, so he's probably regularly going to the synagogues. He's teaching. I mean, it tells us in verse 15, he's teaching in all the synagogues in Galilee, but then he comes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he gets to the synagogue. And so remember, we're we're, we're trying to immerse ourselves in the story. So what was it like? He's in his hometown, right? think old buddies were probably coming and going, Jesus is back. They didn't have Facebook to keep up with people. So you think people maybe who knew him when he was a kid or a teenager or in his 20s, I mean, he's probably about 30 at this point. They're probably going back to here. I bet the synagogue was packed on this day because hometown Jesus is coming back. And we learn in verses 14 and 15 that a great report went out about him. He was being glorified. Word was spreading about this Jesus. And now he comes to his hometown. And let's see what the scripture says in verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's through the end of verse 21. So it says that he gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he finds the place where it's written. And then he reads and in my Bible, it's kind of paragraph form and then it's kind of like a block quote where Jesus is reading from the book of Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. If you're wondering, this is where Jesus is reading from. So he reads this and then he sits down. He says the eyes of everybody are on him. Why, are, why is everybody looking at him? Because he's about to teach about it. What was his teaching? Today, this is fulfilled. So the question we've got to ask is, what is fulfilled? What was Isaiah 61 talking about? What were the people hoping for from this text? And it's extremely important for us to realize that when people read this text, they read it with a hopeful expectation that God was going to make everything right. Look with me at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that we see right here in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Let's pause right there the anointed one from God. The Old Testament referred to this kind of person as the Messiah. There was the expectation that a man was gonna come, he was gonna be anointed by God. He wasn't gonna be just another man with a message. He wasn't gonna be just another prophet. He was gonna be anointed by God for a very special purpose. And he tells us what this purpose is. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So I want to go through what it says that he's going to do, and what does that mean? So remember, we're trying to figure out when Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, what what was he talking about? What's fulfilled? Well, let's look at the text. First, it says he's proclaiming good news to the poor. All along, when you go down this list, we're going to see two levels that Jesus is talking about. One, there's a surface level, and the other, there's a spiritual level. There's a surface level and a spiritual level. First, we see that he's going to proclaim good news to the poor. So surface level, what do we think about? Well, we think about actual poor people. We think about people who don't have money. Maybe they don't have food. We can think of poor people today in our world. We, like poor, we don't have to get real creative to think about what it means to be poor. So on the surface level, you're wondering, okay, this person anointed by God is coming to proclaim good news to the poor, and you keep reading, and you keep reading on the surface level, you see he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, what does that mean? You might think of captive as like literal captive. You're in slavery. You're, you're in bondage, but maybe there's also immaterial captivity, like you're in bondage to money or debt, or, or maybe you think of uh, slavery today. You think of maybe sex slavery or human trafficking, but G- this person, this Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus is here to Proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Again, we don't have to get real creative. You're blind, and then he's going to give you sight. So on the surface level, he's going to make blind people see. He's going to give liberty or freedom to the people who are oppressed. So the oppressed could be the people who are broken or you're crushed or you're despairing. I mean, track with me here. He's talking about needy people, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, people who are needy and know they're needy. 
And on the surface level, you see, okay, Jesus has come to set all these things right. And here's the problem with only reading this at the surface level. If you only read it at the surface level and you think Jesus came to only make surface level things right, then you look around at the world and you say, he must not have accomplished what he came to do. Because there's still people in captivity. There's still blind people who can't see. There's still oppressed people who aren't free. And there's still poor people. So if you only read it on the surface level, you go, okay, Jesus, you came to do this, and I can look around and pretty well tell you failed. So what was Jesus trying to do when he said this is fulfilled? Was he telling the truth? Did he come to fulfill this or not? Well, I think he did, and here's why I think he did, because when you look at the poor, the surface says the economically poor, the socially poor, but the spiritual reality says that we are all poor in spirit. We are spiritually bankrupt. We're poor and we're needy. He's here to set, uh, give liberty to the captives. The truest form of captivity is captivity to sin, that you have no choice but to sin and rebel against God. You are in slavery to sin, and you cannot free yourself, and that captivity will lead to death. Spiritually, we're the blind, aren't we? We are in darkness, and he is going to give us sight. He's going to take us from darkness to light so that we might see God. And then you look at the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? The broken, the crushed, the despairing? Spiritually, isn't that us? That we're broken, and we're crushed, and we're despairing. Even though on the outside, I mean, it looks like we're doing okay. It looks like you could live in a an okay house and have an okay car and have an okay family, but inwardly you could still be crushed and despairing. You could be broken. You could be oppressed spiritually. And here's where it all gets tied together. The surface level, what Jesus came to do and the spiritual. Now, I do think he came to set the surface level things right. I think he literally came to give the blind sight and to help the poor and the oppressed and the captives. I really think he did. And we see that in the Gospels, don't we? If we were to keep even reading just through Luke 4, you see him heal people with sicknesses. You see him cast out demons. He was making things right. But we know that there's another spiritual reality in which what Jesus came to do, he came to do for us because we need that. We are needy. How does this all get tied together? Read verse 19 with me. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? The year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to what the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25, 8 through 17. The year of Jubilee. What's the year of Jubilee? The Old Testament principle of Sabbath said one day a week you ought to stop working. And then it said one year out of every seven years you ought to stop working. And that sixth year you'll gain, you'll get enough crop and you'll get enough of everything that the seventh year you won't have to work. But then it said at seven sets of seven years there ought to be a year of jubilee. And at that year of jubilee you sound the trumpet and everyone who's in slavery is set free. Why? Slavery was a means of paying off debt. And it's saying every debt is forgiven. Every slave is free. Every property that was sold because someone in debt, return it to the original owner. The year of Jubilee was the great release, the great freedom, the great redemption of everything that went wrong for 49 years. Everything where it seemed like 
the, the culture and the society was stepping backwards. Year of Jubilee, God is saying, wait, hit reset. You're free and you're free and your debt's forgiven. And let's reset this thing. It was a year of Jubilee. And Jesus says in quoting Isaiah 61 that he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's here to proclaim the year of Jubilee. See, Jesus is bringing the truest freedom, freedom from sin. So when we read the Gospels, this is something important about the miracles that we see. He really will make the blind see. If not in this life, he'll do it in the next life. He really will set slaves free. If not in this life, he'll do it in the next one. But all of that is pointing to our greater need for him to forgive us of our sin and to make us right. So we see first, we see the redemption that Jesus brings. We see that he's here to bring the presence of God. He's here to bring freedom, both spiritually and on the surface level. As we keep reading in Luke chapter four, we get to the point where we see the people's response. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of the Messiah. And these people who are familiar with this text, who read this text with great expectation, responded just like you would expect them to. First, they marveled, because they said, okay, we've been looking forward to this for a long time. Someone's finally here to make things right. It says they marveled at him. Read verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then look at what they did. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? So they're amazed that someone could have finally showed up to make everything right. But then they kind of get their wits about him and they're like, wait a second. We know your parents. We saw you grow up. We saw you as a kid and a teenager and an adult. We saw you learn. We saw you take your first steps. And you're, you're saying you're the Messiah, Joseph's son right? Like, I know Joseph. So their response is like amazement, yet skeptical. And look at how Jesus anticipates their response. You see this happen over and over in the Gospels, that people will have thoughts, and Jesus will kind of go, I know what you're thinking. And then he'll answer it before they even have to say it. And he does that right here. In verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. No prophet's acceptable in his hometown. When I was a kid, I used to read that and think that if I wanted to do ministry, do I need to move away? Right? Like I didn't get, like what does that mean? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is that the people in his hometown knew him so well and they knew him for so long that they could not believe that he of all people would be the fulfillment of this incredible prophecy. That he of all people was the anointed Messiah. He was far too common to them to be this incredible figure. He was way too familiar to be the one who was going to set everything right. There's no way it could be this Joseph's son. Surely it's got to be someone who comes in way more glory and way more fame and way more prominence than Joseph's son, right? That's their first response. Jesus says, it's fulfilled. And they say, aren't you Joseph's son? And he says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You're unacceptable in your hometown. 
There's something about your hometown where people know you and they know you well. Now, we kind of have a hard time wrapping our minds around that here in suburban Atlanta because this isn't a small town feel, but we still have the same idea of a small town with just people who knew you. Maybe it's your school. Maybe that's where people really watched you come up. And they know how you were when you were a kid. I know for me, people from high school came to church and they knew that I was a pastor, they'd probably say, I don't know if I'm going to that church. (laughs) I, I knew him. I don't know that I want him pastoring me. There's this song that, uh, that we listen to, and um, it is a country song, but it's not a radio country song, so forgive me. It's, it's, I think it's a good country song, uh, but it's by a girl named Ashley McBride, and, and I want to read you a couple of the lyrics because I think it makes the point today of what Jesus was saying then about a prophet's unacceptable in his hometown. So, so listen to these lyrics with me. The song is called Girl Going Nowhere. Here's what it says. Don't waste your life behind that guitar. You, you may get gone, but you won't get far. You're not the first. You won't be the last. And you can tell us all about it when you come crawling back. The road you're on just winds and winds. You're spinning your wheels and wasting your time. I get these calls out on the road. Heard your song on my radio. We always said you'd make it big. And I tell all my friends, I knew you way back when. So don't forget all us little folks. And when you crash and burn, remember we told you so. Right? That's kind of, you're listening to this song and you're, you're like kind of having a hard time, like figuring out which way it's going. And then you go, oh, okay. That last line kind of punches you, right? And you realize like, oh my goodness. And she gets to this place in the song where she goes, but this crowd tonight, you look great. And from where I stand, I, I think I'm doing okay. And I read this, I was listening to this song this week and I was studying this text and I went, okay, wait a second. 21st century version, country version of what Jesus is saying. People in Nazareth are going, yeah, okay, Messiah. When you come back at the end of your life because it's your hometown, you'll end up back here. Just remember. Just remember, at the beginning of your ministry, we all went, no, you're just Joseph's son. So when you come crawling back, just remember we told you so. Okay? You go do your little ministry rounds and we'll be here ready. And now Jesus says, from where I stand, or more accurately, from where I sit at the right hand of the Father, things look a little different than what you said about me, Nazareth. So we have the claims of Jesus, that he came to bring redemption. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of this anticipation that one person was going to come and bring salvation for the world. He's the fulfillment. That's the redemption of Jesus. Then you have the response of the people. What's the response? Rejection. Rejection. Their response is rejection. Look at what else Jesus says here. He goes on after he quotes the proverb and he's like, look, there's no honor in the hometown for for prophets. He says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So you can go read about the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18. There was a drought for about three and a half years. It was a part of a, a prophecy of judgment. But God provided for Elijah because he was a prophet by sending him outside the people of Israel to a widow in a small town. 
And if you go read the story, you'll actually see before he sent them there, he sent them to, he sent them to a little brook and crows would bring him food. What's Jesus' point in, in referencing Elijah? God's saying, you may be Jews, you may think you come from Abraham, so I owe you something, and I owe you nothing. Because if you don't respond right, I'm moving on. If you don't respond right, I'm moving outside of the people of Israel. Because that's where my message is going anyway, so you can get on board or you can get out of the way. That's what he's saying through the story of Elijah. You keep reading and you get to Elisha. And Elisha was mentored by Elijah, and then he too was a prophet. What does Jesus say about him in verse 27? There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, what's his point? What's his point? God did a miracle through Elisha to heal a leper. But Elisha, at that time, didn't heal any of the lepers in Israel. He healed a Syrian. He healed the general of the Syrian army. That's who Naaman was. So what's Jesus' point? First, it's that God in Scripture will take his message away from those who don't respond, and he'll bring it to those who do respond. What this means when you look at the Old Testament references is that God's intention was never just to save Israel or just to save the Jews. His intention was to bring his message of his Savior to the nations. Everyone from the lowly widows in the small town to the generals of the armies of our enemies. God's intention is to bring salvation to the nations. And he'll do it in part because the people that received all these promises in the Old Testament didn't believe it when Jesus came. You see this growing rejection of Jesus as the people of Israel, the people who received the covenants, the people who, who the prophets were raised up out of, they constantly rejected Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, hey, my message is going beyond you. Don't Don't worry. My message is going beyond you. And so I, I think we need to heed that because if we don't respond appropriately, the door will not always be open for us. You may not have the option to keep Jesus at arm's length while you keep doing what you want to do and say, hey, I, Jesus, just give me another year. I know you're calling me to this. I, I know you want my heart and my life, but let me finish this. You won't always have that option. Because if you stay in this long enough and keep Jesus at arm's length, you're eventually just going to turn away and, and you're never going to turn to Christ. We must respond while we have the opportunity. So you see the redemption that Jesus is bring, bringing. You see the response of the people. They're marveling, but they're questioning. And then you see full-blown rejection. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So we see redemption and response and now we see rejection. They've chosen their response. They're filled with wrath. They were extremely angry and they wanted to kill Jesus. Now, here's the two aspects of who Jesus was that are held right up against each other in this passage. 
anointed by God, but rejected by men. Anointed by God and rejected by men. Doesn't that seem contradictory? How could he be anointed by God and rejected by men? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, Isaiah 53 points out both of these things. In the first few verses, you see him, you see the prophet Isaiah writing about this coming Messiah, this servant of God, and you hear him say that he was going to be rejected by men. What does he say? And I'm quoting, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53 is is prophesying, telling that when this Messiah comes, it's going to be someone who's rejected by men. It's going to be someone who experiences rejection. But then the passage also tells us he'll be anointed by God to do what? To bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So the union between Jesus anointing by God and his rejection by men is the exact reason why he came. He brings redemption through rejection. The redemption he promises from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that we read, Luke 4, 18 and 19, this redemption that he promises that has a spiritual reality now but one day will have a surface level reality, this redemption is only brought about through his rejection. That's the gospel. Jesus brings redemption through rejection. See, he's innocently rejected. And he's the ultimate example of the truth that bad things happen to good people. He suffered when he didn't have to so that we don't have to suffer. Not now because you surely know of examples of your suffering now. We don't need to spend long thinking about that. You don't have to try to remember suffering in your life. But he suffered when he didn't have to now so that later we won't have to suffer. When he makes everything right on that day. See, there's a part of Isaiah 61 that Jesus didn't read. He actually left it off. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the last line of it. You want to read it? If you have a copy of the Bible, go turn there and we'll see the part that Jesus left off and you'll say wait why did Jesus leave it off why didn't he quote the whole passage it says he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God why didn't Jesus say that why did Jesus leave off that part that he came to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Don't think of vengeance as he's coming and wiping people out. I mean, try to get the superhero image out of your mind for a second when you think of that. And try instead to put in your mind this idea of justice. The day of vengeance is a day of justice when wrongs will be put right. Slaves will be freed. Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. Slaves will be freed. The day of justice is when slaves will be freed. 
blind? Is it justice for someone to be blind and not have the gift of sight? No, that, unju- that injustice will be overturned. Justice, the blind will have sight. The oppressed, the crushed, the broken, that's an injustice. The day of vengeance, liberty and freedom. Jesus left this off because the first time he came, he came to proclaim, hey, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to make everything right. His first coming, he says, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna be rejected so that you can come and experience this spiritual reality. Now, freedom in me. Get your, get your sins forgiven, receive redemption, come be reconciled to God. But when he comes again, day of vengeance. Wrongs will be put right. When he comes again, we will experience not just the spiritual reality of what he accomplished for us, but we will experience the surface level reality. Go read Revelation 21. Tears, gone. Pain, gone. Death, gone. Sin, gone. Physical suffering, gone. Physical disability, gone. Slavery, gone. Oppression, gone. That will be a real physical reality one day. But Jesus leaves it off in Luke chapter 4 because it's not a reality yet. But through his rejection, through his suffering, we see one who purchased our redemption. Our hope in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our life is that God actually suffered with us and for us. Our hope is that he suffered with us and for us and that he could bring us the greatest and the truest freedom because he would actually experience the greatest suffering. Let's read what Tim Keller says, that Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. So remember who Jesus was speaking to when he read Isaiah 61. It's the needy, it's the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. It's those who suffer. The good news is that through his rejection, he identifies with the suffering and promises to bring hope. So, we've seen who Jesus is, we've seen how the people responded, now how should we respond? Why? I want to look at the examples in the text. For these people, Jesus was so familiar to them that they couldn't bring themselves to faith in who he was. And so I want to speak to you over-churched people like myself. Is Jesus so familiar to you that he doesn't work up in you this response of amazement? Is this text so familiar? Is the Bible so familiar that you're not in awe of the fact that we have the very words of God? Now, I don't want to say that we shouldn't be familiar with Jesus, but I I think we should be familiar with him to the point that it brings intimacy with him. But I never want familiarity with Jesus to lead us to not be amazed at who he was like the people in this passage. 
So the first thing you got to ask your heart is, am I so familiar with Jesus that it's actually leading me to not be amazed with him? And if so, I don't want to say, why don't you spend time apart? I don't think time apart will lead to more intimacy when you're together. And in fact, complete aside, but struggling marriages, I don't think ever have the solution of maybe you need to spend time apart. Ever, ever. I don't think that will ever work. And I'm not speaking from experience because we've only been married a little over four years, but when I look at what God does in marriage and bringing two things together, if the goal is intimacy, how could ever the goal be that you need to get apart? The marriage of a mentor of mine is falling apart. His wife said, if you come back around, you're getting papers. And it's all started with her saying, we're not right. I just think we need to spend time apart. God's desire is intimacy in marriage. Why? Because that's a reflection of how, what he wants with us. So I pray that we're familiar with Jesus, but not, so, not in the way that it leads us to hold him at arm's length and go, yeah, I, I get who you are. I'm just, okay, yeah, Jesus. Okay, you're Jesus over here. I pray that we're so intimately familiar with him that we're still amazed at him. So uh, are we familiar with Jesus? How else should we respond? Well, look at how the people got extremely angry at Jesus. I imagine them saying, you have no right. When he quoted the prophecies and he quoted Elijah and he quoted Elisha, I just imagine the people going, Jesus, you've got no right to talk to us like that. I know your father, I know your mother, I know your family. I watched you and changed your first century diapers. You've got no right to talk to me like that. Is there anything in your life Jesus does not have the rights to? Is there any area of your life Jesus does not have the right to speak into? Let me say that differently because he has the right to speak into anything. Is there anything you're unwilling to let Jesus speak into? Is there any portion of your heart, anything you love, any way you spend your time, any realm of your job, your marriage, your kids, your family, where you live, what your dreams and hopes are? Is there anything that you're not going to allow Jesus to speak into? Hey, Jesus, come and save this part of me, but I've got this part under control. Because if so, that will lead to anger when Jesus inevitably speaks into those things. And he says, no, actually, I want control of that too. And you'll turn in anger and say, you have no right to come over here and infringe upon my dreams. So I wonder, is there anything in your life where you're not giving Jesus the right to speak into? And the third response speaks to how Jesus was rejected. And I want to speak to those of us this morning who are suffering. Do you think Jesus is too distant to understand what you're going through? Is he, do you think he's too distant from your hurt and your pain? I want to encourage you to go read the Psalms because the psalmists say all the time, where are you, God? How long will you sleep, God? How long until you answer me, God? I want to encourage you to be honest with your grief, but I want to encourage you to let your grief lead you to the point where you see that Jesus is not distant from you in your suffering. He's with you in it. And he walked through it so that he could be one who sympathizes with you, knowing exactly what you're going through. 
He's not too distant from you. He didn't just suffer for you. He suffered with you. So if you think Jesus is too distant today, the good news is that you're wrong. He's not too distant. He's near. So as we wrap up and get ready to sing another song, I want to invite us to take on an attitude of prayer and to really wrestle with who we see Jesus is in this text and how God may be calling us to respond to him. It's a long life we live. Even if you die at what we consider a young age, you still live a long time. I mean, a year is a long time. We got a long journey. And the question is, what direction is your journey going in? God, as I was reading this text this week, it just kept hitting me over and over that you bring us salvation now, but we still suffer and we still hurt and we still have pain and you're pointing us to the day when you're gonna make everything right. And we look forward to that day when there's no more pain and we look forward to that day when we get to see you face to face. So God, help us now to have a right perspective on everything else in our life. Knowing that our suffering will ultimately never overwhelm us. Because even if it takes our life from us, then we'll depart and be with you. And then God, on the flip side, help us to see that the best things we have in this life, the most money we could ever get, the, the, the ultimate dreams that would ever be fulfilled in our hearts, ultimately can't satisfy us because if we die, then they're gone. But help us to be able to say with Paul, in Philippians 4, that we've learned the secret of Christian contentment, how to fight idols and how to endure suffering, how to have abundance and how to have nothing. Jesus, have our hopes set on Jesus, have our eyes set on Jesus, have our hearts set on Jesus. God, would you show us your glory this morning in your word?